You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The Five Eyes have had quite enough of Stone Panda's cloud hopping, thank you very much, and they want Beijing to put a stop to it. Beijing says it's all slander and that the Yankees are probably just as bad. Blind turns out not to be as blind as users thought. Reputation jacking comes to business email compromise. Alexa complies with GDPR but goes a little overboard. Author and podcaster Brian McCullough joins us to discuss his book, How the Internet Happened. And no, a hitman has not been hired to get you, no matter what that email says. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, December 21st, 2018. Authorities in the Five Eyes said yesterday, in coordinated announcements, that China's Ministry of State Security had attacked managed service providers with a view to using the MSPs as an avenue of approach into their customers' enterprises. The centerpiece of the coordinated naming and shaming was the U.S. Justice Department's indictment of two contractors working for the Ministry of State Security. But the words from London, Canberra, Ottawa, and Wellington were clear and left no doubt that China has, in the eyes of the five, abrogated its obligations to restrain industrial espionage. The announcements didn't say which MSPs and other targets were attacked in the long-running campaign, known at least since last year as Operation Cloudhopper, but Reuters reports that its sources say IBM and Hewlett-Packard Enterprise were two of them. IBM told Reuters that it had no evidence that sensitive corporate data had been compromised. HPE says it could not comment on the Cloudhopper campaign. The company also pointed out that it had spun off its MSP business last year. They told Reuters, We are unable to comment on the specific details described in the indictment, but HPE's managed service provider business moved to DXC Technology in connection with HPE's divestiture of its enterprise services business in 2017. DXC also declined comment. The approach the indicted hackers are alleged to have taken is disturbing in that it effectively transforms an MSP into an avenue of approach to its customers, and that avenue of approach would usually not be regarded as a particularly dangerous one. The indictment describes one instance in which the Cloudhopper operators compromised a New York MSP and through it reached targets not only in the United States, but in Brazil, Germany, India, Japan, the United Arab Emirates, and the United Kingdom. 
The sectors involved in that incident showed the breadth of economic targets. Financial services, biotechnology and medical equipment, electronics and automobile manufacturing, as well as the extraction industries of mining and oil and gas exploration. The group the Five Eyes are glaring at is APT-10 Stone Panda, which has now clearly entered the premier league of named and shamed state hacking, right up there with Fancy Bear, and probably seated higher than Cozy Bear or Charming Kitten. For its part, China has dismissed the allegations as slander, and says it had filed stern representations with Washington, demanding the charges against its two citizens be dropped. Beijing said, quote, We urge the U.S. side to immediately correct its erroneous actions and cease its slanderous smears related to Internet security, end quote. China also complains that the U.S. gets a pass for its own electronic collection and that what's sauce for the panda should be sauce for the eagle. A mighty unpleasant meal that would be, too, but the cases aren't really parallel. The U.S. and its sisters in the Five Eyes are objecting specifically to industrial espionage, theft of IP and trade secrets for the advancement of national economic goals. Everyone does indeed know, as Beijing says, that it's an open secret governments collect against each other all the time. But that's not the point. The point the U.S. and others are making is that China is behaving differently and that in doing so, in hacking on behalf of its company's competitive advantage, is violating agreements it entered into back in 2015 to stop doing that. It seems increasingly likely that Beijing won't find many takers in the developed world for its claims of innocence and ill use. Sterner measures against Chinese government hacking are expected in the coming weeks, especially after the conclusion of Sino-American trade talks. Blind, the anonymous social networking app that had appealed to big tech whistleblowers, malcontents, and others who wish to discuss their employers without fear of retribution, proves to be less blind than thought. One of its servers was left exposed without so much as password protection. Unencrypted, too, according to TechCrunch. Blind says only one server was so mishandled and that the matter has now been fixed. But if you want to air the boss's dirty laundry, the wise troublemaker should probably seek elsewhither for an outlet. Consider a local bar and grill. Companies continue to suffer social engineering attacks from criminals working through Google Cloud. It's business email compromise, but it uses the Google service to lend it credibility. The attackers park their malicious payloads in Google Cloud storage, whose wide use and good reputation lull the unwary into the trap. ZDNet calls the technique reputation jacking. The tactic not only lends credibility, but it makes it easier for the hoods to cover their tracks. The alert listener will have discerned a certain resemblance between reputation jacking and an attack that compromises an MSP so an attacker can pivot into a customer's enterprise with the agility of those Shenyu dancers we keep seeing on YouTube. Alexa has done some oversharing, but with the best of intentions. As Motherboard notes, following the German magazine Heise, a user requested, as is his right under GDPR, that Amazon send him all the data it held on him. And Amazon did, but they got some of the data wrong and inadvertently sent him 1,700 recordings from some other guy's Alexa, including some apparently made while the other gentleman was showering. Time out, Alexa. Play 99 Luftballon. Let it go at that. That tiresome hitman extortion scam is back, says Hackreed. 
you get an email out of the blue from some joker who says you don't know me, but I've been hired as a hitman and paid to kill you. But I'll agree not to kill you if you fork over four grand in, what else, Bitcoin. It's no more plausible than it was the first time around. Ignore the email. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. So we've got an article from Motherboard. This is called How Hackers Bypass Gmail Two-Factor Authentication at Scale. Mm -hmm. And they're working off a report from Amnesty International. Yep. Uh, Let's walk through here. What are they describing? Okay, so they're talking about the uh, two-factor authentication that uses some kind of code that you either receive or is generated for you. Okay. Yep. And this is a user-entered code. Right. Uh, so there are two ways that you can get these. One is with uh, with an SMS messaging, mm-hmm. uh, just like a text message to your phone. Yep. I'm sure we've all seen this. Yeah. And another way is with some kind of time-based algorithm that generates a uh, a code based on a key that you've already uh, shared between the two right. sites. So like Google Authenticator would exactly. be an example Exactly. Google Authenticator is a prime example of the time-based uh the time-based solution. All right, so walk me through this. Let's say you're targeting me. So I'm targeting you. So I set up a fake site that looks almost exactly like Gmail or looks okay. exactly like Gmail. Right. And um, I send you a phishing link that says, hey, Dave, log into your Gmail account. All right, I click the link. You click the link and I take your password, your username and password, and I, on the back end of this, this is actually a web application that goes to Gmail and logs in under uh, for Gmail. So I'm logging into your fake version of Gmail. Correct. But behind the scenes... I'm logging into the real version of Gmail using the credentials you sent me. Gotcha. Okay. So the next thing I see on the back end is, or my application sees 
on the back end is that the page that says, we just sent you a code. So I prompt you with the exact same page saying, we just sent you a code. On the fake site. On the fake site. Yep. You look at your cell phone. and code, right, code pops up. Code pops up. You enter it into my fake site, and I enter it into Gmail, and now I'm in your account. So now you you own my account. I own your account. This is how this works. It's a phishing scam, essentially. It's not really new technology. It's the same thing as when I as credential harvesting, except now I'm I'm actually harvesting the two factor as well. Right. And I guess one of the things they're pointing out here is that they this is completely automated. Right. There's, there's and nobody... that's really the part that makes it terrifying is that they can do this at scale mm-hmm. and send it out to, to millions of people and it's automated and they can they can just compromise accounts. Uh, because it like we said before, it's it's a numbers game. If I send it out to a million people and one percent of those people go go through with it then that's 10,000 people I've compromised. Yeah. So what does this mean? Uh, should I still be using two-factor? Uh, yeah, you should still be using two-factor. Uh, number one, there's a couple ways you can protect yourself against this. First, never click on a link in an email. Right. Go directly right. to the site. Of course. Right. Uh, if you were using a password manager that checks the site before it enters a password, that would protect you against this as well. Oh, right. right? So it would say, this isn't Gmail. I'm not entering your Gmail uh, account. Uh, password into a site that's not Gmail. Mm-hmm. So that would stop that from happening. And this article recommends also using a hardware token uh, like a YubiKey. Oh, I see. Uh, I'm not a cryptographer, so I don't know what the cryptography is that underlies these these things. Right. I have a YubiKey. I use it uh, for things like my, like my password safe. But if somebody steals it, they're never going to get into it because they can't actually enter the uh, the hardware-based token. I see. Because they don't physically have what I have. Right. So they're saying that this hardware key somehow uh, circumvents this or, or prevents this man-in-the-middle yeah, kind of thing that's going it, on here. And I'm not sure, again, I'm not sure what the cryptography is underneath, but... Yeah. According but, to the yeah, article, that's a good step. Yeah. To, exactly. and, I, and I think also this is one of those things where if you're a person who needs this, you probably know it. Right. You know, it, it, if you're if you're a person who is who is being targeted by, by a government organization... You would know exactly like you said. You would know that you're a person that's targeted by a government organization, and right. you should probably already be taking extraordinary security measures. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, the bad guys up their game, and uh, they're doing it quickly. I guess. It's yes, they one do. Of the lessons here. All right, Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Brian McCullough. He's the host of the Internet History Podcast and the Tech Meme Ride Home Podcast. He's also author of the book How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone. Our discussion today focuses on the book. Here's my conversation with Brian McCullough. So I'm I'm actually I'm not a historian. I'm not a journalist. I'm a, a three-time uh, company founder, 
it always bothered me that there have been books about the deep internet, you know, going back to the ARPANET and, and the Pentagon and all that stuff. But there hadn't really been a history of the internet going mainstream and, and infiltrating all of our lives. So like every other startup idea I've had, the impulse was, well, that's a good idea. Somebody's going to do that someday. Why not me? I'm not used to writing a book, so I found it. I was getting all these great interviews firsthand from uh, initially, especially the, the the Netscape people. And I thought, well, five years from now, two sentences of this interview will make it into the book. Why don't I just throw up all of the interviews unedited um, and see if people find that interesting? And so that's how the podcast got started. So the podcast and the book sort of uh, fed on each other. And, and now the book is out. And um, it's it's been a wild ride. As you were making your way through the history of the Internet, were there any things that jumped out at you as, as being surprising, things that were unexpected? Yeah, totally, because, again, I sort of lived a lot of this, so there were so many things that I was surprised. Just, you know, off the top of my head, like, I I came up, most of my businesses were in the 2000s when Microsoft was sort of in its lost decade. Hmm. So it surprised me how much especially... As late as, you know, the early 2000s, as late as Google IPOing and, and and not wanting to tell anybody how much money they were making, it surprised me how much Microsoft, everyone was thinking of Microsoft, was making moves in relation to what Microsoft may or may not do. There was a lot of times when I didn't realize what the theme of a section was until I was writing it. So I knew I was going to have to do something on eBay you know, eBay is not a tech company that we think of as one of the big, big guys right now, one of the mm -hmm. fang stocks or anything like that. But when I when I was reading and researching eBay, it occurred to me that eBay is actually a way more influential company than anybody gives it credit for. We, we live in the tyranny of the five star ratings now, you know, like where would Uber or, or uh, Airbnb or anything like that if be if if eBay hadn't pioneered the reputation system that allows us to do business with strangers on the Internet. Uh, eBay trained a lot of people for the first time to, that you could do business with strangers halfway across the world that you would never meet and never even know their name. Hmm. And then also eBay was the first company that, you know, we, we think of social media platforms now. We know that they're incredibly valuable because of the content that the users generate. eBay was the first company that sort of didn't own anything. All eBay was was a platform for the economic activities of its users. Now, how much of the growth of the Internet was linear versus uh, fits and starts? Was it, was it more of one than the other? A hundred percent fits and starts. Hmm. And I mean, that's always true for any new technology. You kind of have to throw stuff against the wall and, and see what sticks. But, you know, conceptually, it was harder because at the very, very beginning, people people don't even know what was there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like if, if you if you develop an um, internal combustion engine, you have a good idea that you're going to use it to move people and things around. But when um, when the web takes off, People aren't really sure what it's for. Is it for doing business? Is it for commerce? Is it for just talking to each other? So many things in, in the 90s especially, but even all the way up through today, has been people trying to work out even at a base conceptual level what the business opportunity here was, what the use case was. And so I always found that fascinating because the whole book is just a bunch of stories of entrepreneurs feeling their way around in the dark. You know, I, I think it's interesting when you think about some of the unintended consequences. I've heard people say that 
you know the the uh, the original sin of uh, of the internet was making everything free and having it being paid for by advertising, and that's what led that's what's led to all of these privacy and tracking issues. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts on that? Uh, one of the first interviews I did was with Lou Montuli, who um, invented the the cookie, the browser cookie, hmm. or at least was one of the guys at Netscape that that um, helped invent that. that. Over the course of 200 uh, episodes of the Internet History Podcast, that's come up a lot. The idea that the original sin was because the Internet came out of academia, it wasn't commercialized. I think it wasn't until even 1992 that you legally could do business on the on the Internet. And so... There was this culture at the very beginning that there's no way we're going to pay for anything. Like it, it was almost like um, it was like an article of faith. Hmm. Uh, so I don't, I don't blame the companies themselves or the entrepreneurs themselves from going towards an advertising model, because it was the users and it was the culture that was inherent in the internet uh, that that required them to go that way. I, I, I actually have made the argument that it's only in the last five years or so that we have finally convinced people that things on the internet are worth paying for. And, and we can credit uh, the Netflixes and the Spotify's of the world for that, I think. Um, but it's not the company's fault. It was the culture of the internet as it existed right before it went mainstream. And so then when all the mainstream users come onto it, they just adopt the the culture that was already there. But then again, at the same time, can you imagine how it would have been different had Bill Gates gotten his way and the internet from day one was something that you had to pay Microsoft for, you know, whatever fee they were going to charge you per month? I don't know that that would be a better internet. We got what we got and it's an accident of history. And that doesn't mean that we can't change it. And I think we're evolving into um, an internet that's that's not just ad-based. I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, when it comes to security, um, What's been the evolution of that? Was it baked in from the beginning or grafted on along the way? It really feels like nobody on the early Internet was thinking too much about uh, security. Because, again, remember, if if you're using the Internet in, say, 1978 or even as late as 1988, uh, you're expecting that all of the other people that you'll be interacting with will be technically proficient, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think you want to talk about a real original sin of the Internet is that nobody ever assumed that normal people would be on it. Hmm. And so there were a lot of design decisions that were made early on just sort of by default because no one was thinking about my mom using the Internet. Right. Right. Um, and, and so I feel like it's been decades and decades of sort of cleaning up that mess Certainly, if you were designing uh, the Internet today, you you would, from the ground up, make it way more secure. So I, I think that what you've seen essentially in terms of uh, how it's designed, that's it was it was always baked in that it's it's not super secure from the user perspective, from the mainstream perspective. I feel like, and and maybe you can speak more to this, we go through these cycles where, you know, I, I was doing actual library research for this book, like going back to finding articles from the late nineties and things like that. And it was, it was surprising to me, the headlines that, you know, say a double click would make because they would do something with the cookies and, and it would make the the front page of the New York times. Oh my God, privacy concerns. Mm -hmm. And you know, if, if I told you what those details were today, you'd laugh because you know, (laughs) everybody does way worse stuff today in terms of tracking people. And so then, so at, at the beginning Everyone was afraid. No one wanted to put their credit card online. People were convinced e-commerce would never take off because no one would share their credit cards. And then somehow after the bubble bursts, 
around the turn of the century, everyone just forgets about it. And so we went through this 10 or, or 15 year period where everyone was just blase and, and Facebook comes in and, and, and Google comes in and they, it, we gave away everything. And so now I, I feel like the, the mainstream user concern trolling about data and security is ebbing back to like <laughs> to a fever pitch where probably it, it, it needs to be to, to correct some of these things. How do you think this internet revolution compares to other huge shifts we've had in the history of humanity? I'm thinking of things like the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. Is this on that sort of scale in your estimation? I think it's uh, more profound in the sense that it's an Industrial Revolution combined with a media revolution. Hmm. So there are a lot of things that are changing the way that we... Um, we do our jobs, that we conduct commerce, you know, those are the obvious things you can point to. But as we've been seeing, especially last these last few years or so, the internet is fundamentally changing the way we think and interact with each other and our institutions. And that is, you know, there's a million different avenues we could go down talking about this, about, you know, how, you know, content bubbles and things like that. But on a really fundamental level, I think that the internet is atomizing all of us into these different tribes and into these different worldviews. And so while there is a big industrial revolution happening, there's a big commercial revolution happening. At the same time, I think the internet is fundamentally rewiring society hmm. and our relationship with government and the the the... the the, the balance between the individual and the government and culture is is kind of been tossed up in the air right now and and it hasn't quite settled yet yeah that's interesting i mean i i've I've heard people refer to uh, particularly some of the online social media platforms as anxiety engines mm -hmm. um, and and that's a design decision too because again uh, you know I talk about this on on the daily tech meme podcast a lot um, the the success the, the success playbook for the last 10 or 15 years was always scale. Once people realized, you know, you can code up a chat app and have a billion users overnight, the only thing that anybody ever designed for was more usage. You know, Facebook is more sharing, more likes, more all these things. Um, and because it was taken as a given that more usage was inherently good. But there's a difference between designing for quantity and designing for quality. And I think that the next 10 years or so is going to be about the successful companies and the successful startups and the successful products will be the ones that will design for quality of life, for quality of experience with the product, as opposed to just more, 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 more sharing all that stuff. That's Brian McCullough. The book is How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, 
Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.